Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, <clears throat> or even if they don't, today is Monday, June the 10th, 2019. This is episode 2456 of the Survival Podcast, and it will be the last new Survival Podcast for the next two weeks. Uh, I am going on vacation officially Thursday, but I am starting my vacation sort of, kind of, tomorrow. I spent all weekend getting uh, nine really great, and I mean really great rewinds ready to go for you. In fact, in just a little bit, I'm going to tell you what's up and coming on those. Uh, the reason I'm doing this is because I have so much stuff here that needs to be in good order for my caretaker when we're gone. Uh, to get in order, and having my fence taken out last week was something that set me back. So it just seems like it's an easier thing to do a couple more rewinds. Uh, but I think, again, they're going to be some really good rewinds um, for you. In fact, I, I kind of crowdsourced a bunch of them uh, with the Zello group. So let me tell you what's coming starting tomorrow. Um, I did two episodes uh, a few years ago called Holy Crap, I Just Found Out Everything Isn't Super, Part 1 and 2. And the Zello crew definitely said, hey, you should really do those as rewinds. So uh, tomorrow you're getting Holy Crap 1, and then Wednesday you'll get Holy Crap 2. And while it's already been a rewind one time, it was a long time ago that we rewound it, the show that I did with Masada Ayub on Lethal Force Aftermath, I know personally that show has already saved two people. Uh, major misery uh, by listening to it that I've heard from over the years. Uh, that will be um, Thursday. And then Friday of this week, you will have a fun show. I wanted to leave you with something fun on a Friday, so it will be Eating Like a King on a Below Average Income. That was also crowdsourced off of the Zello crew. Uh, Monday leading off next week, we will have uh, episode 107 of TSP Rewind, Training Dogs to Fit in on the Homestead. Episode 108 on Tuesday, there is no sovereignty without mental sovereignty. I always try to leave you with at least one episode during Rewinds from the uh, Insurrection series. And then on uh, Wednesday of next week, we'll have the bright future of homesteading in America. Uh, Thursday, we'll have getting ready for fall gardening. No, I haven't lost my mind. It really is the time to start thinking about that. And uh, we will finish up next week uh, with how liberty creates inequality. And why that's good, one of my most controversial shows ever. So everything's ready to go and set up. I just want to kind of to let you guys know that. And one of the things that I'm going to do since that is the case is I am leaving you guys with a sale. Uh, summer's kind of my slowest time of the year anyway. I always try to run an MSB sale every summer. Here's what I got for you this, this time around. How about this? 30 bucks a year. That's right, you get the MSB for 30 bucks a year versus 50. That saves 20 bucks right there. It's like 42% or something off, something like that. Um, you get all the discounts, everything that you would normally get. Um, so it's not any kind of like pared-down membership. It's a full MSB membership. Here's where it gets really good. If you join during this two-week period using the discount code SPRING, I'm sorry, SUMMER19, that is SUMMER19, it's far from spring anymore. SUMMER19, uh, when you sign up for a one-year membership, you get it for 30 bucks, but... 
When you renew, you keep the $30 rate. So it's a lock-in, $30 a year for as long as you keep your membership. If you cancel, then you lose your special rate. If you have a failure of a card or a technology failure, something like that, through no fault of your own, it just did, the renew doesn't work. It could be my end, it could be PayPal, it could be Stripe, it could be your bank, whatever. Then you just email me and I'll fix it and get you your rate back. Um, unfortunately, to let you renew online, this is for new customers or people with expired accounts only. Uh, I'm not AT&T that screws over everybody except the new customer trying to get in the door. Um, I have no problem letting people renew uh, early and get a discount rate if you don't already have one. But you'll have to do that by mail. I have a write-up on the blog today that you can look up and see exactly how to do that. Um, if I don't do it that way, if I, if I try to let you do it online, what will happen is you get overlap billed and you'll get double billed. And then you're really mad at me and I don't want you mad at me. I know I do a discount for first responders, EMTs, paramedics, military, law enforcement, all that stuff. If you've been waiting to join, don't worry about it. Use the, This is a better sale. Um, this is like one of those, you know, once or twice a year I do a sale that's good. Again, the discount code is SUMMER19, the number 19. SUMMER19, all one word. Uh, you can sign up online and uh, consider joining. If you like this show and the work that I do, hey, what a great deal for everybody here. You get your money back through the discounts. You spend less money up front. It's a really good deal. Consider joining. With that, let's go ahead and uh, kind of dive headlong into our weekly, um, what, would, what we've been calling a community revitalization segment on Mondays. Uh, this one actually comes in in the form of a question, but I think it's a good discussion on uh, something that's really important with smaller rural communities if they're going to uh, achieve growth. Uh, and, and build strong communities and bring in an influx of, of new people and kind of stop the bleeding of the leaving where people grow up and they love a small town, but they just like, I don't have an opportunity here, so they go somewhere else. Uh, this comes from Jason, who is involved with local government. And I will say before I do this, so everybody understands me, yes, I'm an anarchist. I also answer questions as they're asked. I may even feel a little bit dirty giving advice to the state here. Uh, but I'm also a realist, and I'm going to answer the question as it was asked. I am not turning in my anarchist card. I am not going over to the side of the state, but the state is a thing. It is there, and we do have to deal with it. And in this case, I think you'll see that it's money that they're going to spend one way or another. And what Jason's saying is, how do we get them to spend it on this versus that, and should they? All right, so what Jason says is, my question in regard to the Monday segment dealing with community re uh, revitalization Um, my county is looking at installing a fiber optic network for internet to every home in the county. We have 10 townships and are focused on the last, the, the, the three least supported. Currently, we are in a bidding process with three providers, all of which have their own ideas on what works best, uh, how they can profit the most, and should have bids back in the next few weeks. The county also has an economic development community that's driving this effort. Indiana is offering grants to the counties that are most underserved. So there is a process to follow to obtain funds. Currently, my county is being told that we are not underserved as the state definition of broadband, 10 megabits download, differs from the FCC's definition of 25 megabits to download. We plan on disputing that, but time is of the essence, and we want to move on getting the work going uh, on these townships without so much red tape. Bids are expected to come back around $5 million. Uh, which the county plans on paying through uh, landfill tipping fees. The investment would be put back from a cut from the providers for monthly fees, still to be negotiated. Currently, Hughes Satellite is the main source of Internet, 
and you will use their data plan in less than a week uh, before they can slow it down. Uh, since more populated areas have cable, but the service is not very good from the feedback out there, satellite is also not good for working from home, e-learning, streaming, video gaming, etc. I'm sure I'm not telling you anything you don't know. An issue is not all the government officials are on board. We have a county council of seven members and a commissioner board with three of them. It sounds like we might have a majority, but it appears to be on the fence. Currently, there's also uh, no public knowledge until the bids come in. So our get-out-the-drive push for support has not begun. I was wondering your thoughts on the potential investment due to the cost, $22 million total, and the potential that 5G could be here someday. We are rural. Your game plan on how to convince the county boards to approve uh, and any strategy in drumming up public support. Well, I, I, I'll tell you that I don't think you'll have a lot of trouble uh, drumming up public support for better Internet access. It is something that is widely sought by people. Way, way back in the day, I'm talking like early 2000s, uh, when I was in late 90s, uh, when I was involved with a lot of outside plant construction here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, uh, we had to put these great big giant machines in the back of people's yards. And um, when we would have to do that, of course, there was always a lot of resistance to it. And But when they would say, well, what are you doing? And we'd say, well, we're upgrading the uh, cable TV plant so that they can bring high-speed Internet here. Um not everybody, but 90% plus of people that were resistant to having this big machine and these people in their back, you're like, hey, did you go ahead? Go, 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 go. Okay, fine, yeah. And that was then. I mean, today, if you still don't have high-speed Internet, you're, you're pretty open to this. I'm not really clear what landfill tipping is. Uh, tipping to me is something you, you pay for at, you know, at your discretion. Uh, I go out to, uh, I go out to a, uh, the restaurant and I order a steak and it's really good and the person does a good job for me, I tip them better than if it sucked. But your objections that would come from uh, member council members is going to be dependent on um, a couple things. One, is that money money that's going to happen anyway? In other words, is this an existing expense or an existing? See, it's an expense. I, I'm coming from the people side, but from the the government side, is this an existing source of revenue? And I gotta hate to use that word. I do feel dirty when I use that word because the government doesn't have revenue. Is this existing theft fees, or is this a new theft? Because if you have a true conservative on your board um, that, that looks at as small government concepts, might say, hey, we're, we're taking new money here. Okay, so that would be one type of resistance. Your other resistance would be, if it's not new, new theft, if it's old theft, what are we giving up to do this? In the end, you have to look at this, if you want to make a compelling fiscal argument, again, this sounds just, I, I feel filthy talking about government this way. The concept is, what is the value of this to the community long term versus the initial expense? And what is the ROI and what is the time to return of investment? Most of the money government spends never gets an ROI. Never. It's not even a long ROI. It's not even a poor ROI. It's a non-existent ROI. The things government does... That actually does pay. That does pay for itself over time, and it does benefit the most people, and, and and causes the least harm. Is infrastructure, roads, bridges, etc. And when we look at electrical utilities, cable utilities, internet service, things like that, we need to look at them as what they truly are. They're infrastructure. They're technological infrastructure, but they're infrastructure, and that's that's what we're talking about. And to me, the reality is, 
in 2019 and going forward, you are not going to grow a rural town, a rural community, small town USA, without good access to good internet. Now, honestly, if I have at least 10 megabits of download speed, I'm relatively happy. I, I can, I'm not ecstatic, but I can work with that. Right here, I get around 90 to 100. They promised me 200, but when I actually test it with real throughput, it's about 200, I mean 100, uh, around 90 to 120 download. And that's, there is nothing I can't do with that. There is nothing I can't do with that at all. Uh, I can stream, you know, I can have Netflix go with my grandkids. I could be running a Skype interview here. I can, you know, upload files while I'm in the middle of an interview or whatever. And upload speed and download speeds are generally asynchronous, means they're different speeds. And my upload speed is far slower than that 100 uh, megabit speed, but it's it's still somewhere in the neighborhood like 28, 29. So I'm kind of spoiled, but I could do my job at 10, 25 meg uh, of download speed as long as I have a good, reasonable upload speed. Satellite Internet, and it sounds like maybe the very fact that Satellite Internet is available where you are, maybe helping you with the state grant thing. Um, satellite Internet is not a valid solution unless there are no other solutions, and it's still not, it's still not good enough. Since you can't technically run a business on it uh, from a, a terms and conditions standpoint, um, that doesn't do any good to tell them that you're running a business on it when you're down. I had a... I had satellite internet in Arkansas, and I think I went 28 days without service. Where it's just like, yeah, your shit's broken, and uh, we understand that. And basically, all you need is somebody to come out there and install a new receiver. Uh, no, we won't mail you one because we're not really sure what exactly you need right now, and uh, we just don't have anybody that can get there. Uh, yet, I had a neighbor get an install done in three days because they were all about the new customer. So they just. The, the, the service level is crap on top of the technical service level. It did work for, you know, browsing the Internet. It worked for watching YouTube videos. I could even upload some files, um, you know, some audio files and stuff like that without it being too terrible. Uh, but, yeah, you'd, you'd use up your, you know, I would have used up my allowance if we didn't have an office where I did all my work at really, really fast, like in a week, like you're saying. So the, the case that you're going to have to make is going to be, number one, you need to get into Excel, and you need to build a financial model here. And you need to, like, you're going to have to pull some shit out of your ass, really, literally. Like, you're going to have to figure out, like, well, what is the potential of bringing in new, new residents? What is the value of one new housing development? You know, and my question is, do you have plans for things like that? Public support is nice, but the case to be made is we are either going to stagnate and rot and die, or we're going to join the modern world. 5G. I think 5G in time, and so we're talking five, seven years, will for a lot of people replace conventional Internet. Not everybody, but a lot of people. I don't know that a lot of people are going to want to run full-on businesses on it due to some issues, um, and I'm going to tell you that places like where you are are going to be far to the back of the line. They can tout 5G as a solution to this rural Internet problem all they want, but where are they going to go first? They're going to go where the money is. They're going to go where the money is, and the money is not in small-town USA. So Chicago, Dallas, Jacksonville, Atlanta, Houston, New York, 
uh, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle, all that's getting 5G first. So I don't think that it makes sense for you guys to wait on this. If, if the money's there, if it's going to be relatively painless for the population, and or if that money is now not going to be used to do things like go out and do fence enforcement or something like that, It, it seems like a pretty smart thing to tell you exactly how to do it. I, I, you know, convince these people. I don't know, dude. I don't live where you are. I don't have enough information on that. Um, to me, if I'm, if I would go back into my old small government mindset, and you were trying to convince me, and you wanted my vote, make the economic case to me. Make the economic case. We're going to spend twenty-two million dollars. Where's the money coming from? How much of that money is being diverted from somewhere else? How, that, how much is that being raised from new revenue sources? What are those new revenue sources exactly? Are, are people going to be upset about having to pay for it or not? And what is our timeline on ROI? Because even if it's 10 years or 20 years, it's still a solid investment in our future. Because even when 5G comes along, things like fiber to the premise, which is what you're talking about, that's going to be valuable. And if you want, I mean, just think of it this way. See, and I think maybe you got a, a cart before the horse thing here going on. You have to think about it. If we specifically target one significant company to come here that will come here because of this, or one group of people who can work remotely or something that this brings to our community, and you might say, well, like, would a business really care? Would a business really care? So if I'm a Joe's Widgets Incorporated and I'm going to move to Sheboyganville, Indiana, right, and um, I, I'm going to get you know dedicated services, and I'm going to be able to probably do that just about anywhere in the world. Getting a, a, a significant office uh, hooked up with, with high-speed Internet, it can have some upfront expenses and all, but it's pretty much doable almost anywhere because it's a different type of, of service, a dedicated Uh, services. So you'd think, you know, Joe's Widgets, that was considering Sheboyganville, wouldn't care. But yeah, Joe's Widgets cares. Because Joe's Widgets is going to have to attract a significant talent pool to be able to operate in Sheboyganville. And one of the things that's going to be necessary to attract that talent pool, you know, your marketing people, your finance people, etc., some of the people that maybe you're going to hire that are not living there currently is people want high-speed Internet. So that is something that even like a small to mid-sized company is going to hire a couple, you know, anything from 20 to 200 people. If, if good Internet is not available locally, it's going to be a big demerit compared to other places because there's so many places where it is available. That's the big thing now, right? Then the other side of that is most companies today do have some level of remote work capability for their people. Yeah, if nothing else, for snow days and shit like that. So knowing that you know your execs, et cetera, can telecommute in, do work after hours, et cetera, and, and be able to do it efficiently is important. So those are the types of things that you need to talk about, the specifics you have to build for yourself. But I do think you're not getting anywhere in building up communities today without high-speed Internet. That's just a, a foregone conclusion. And 5G, 5G will probably change the face of the Earth. But it's not going to do it immediately. It's going to be a while yet. And the places without Internet is going to be the last places to get it. By the way, I'm just going to throw this out real quick because I keep seeing all the scare bullshit about 5G going to melt brains or cause cancer or set the earth on fire, whatever. It's bullshit. 
It's bullshit. It's bullshit. And one more time, just so you're completely clear on my position about all the scare tactics about 5G and they show pictures of like antennas on fire and all, it's all bullshit. And it's exactly what they said about 4G and LTE. It's exactly what they said about 3G. It's exactly what they said about 2G. And guess what? It's what they said about 1G. It's what they said about pagers. And back in the 1970s, it's what they said about flipping microwave ovens. Technology is advancing. We don't need to be afraid of every new technology. Please don't believe the bullshit. Um, it's it's a technology that's coming, and no, it's not killing people. There's some security concerns, especially since they're buying most of that shit from China. That's a totally different uh, ball of wax, though. Oh, prediction. Someday there'll be a 6G, and they'll say all this shit about it, too. Next up, guys, um, remember, we're not that far away now from episode 2500. We're less than 50 episodes away. Episode 2500 is going to be epic. I want you to be part of it. Uh, we did this for episode 224, which is our one-year anniversary. We did it for episode 1000. That episode was almost five hours long. Um, what we're doing this time, though, is you guys call in for episode 2500 and tell me why I'm a jerk. Like, Jack, you're a jerk because of you. I paid off my debt, and now I have all this stupid money that I don't know what to do with. And you can be as, uh, as sarcastic with the whole you're a jerk thing as you want, or you can even call in and say, I don't really think you're a jerk, and just tell me good stuff. But I'd like as many of you as possible to play along with, Jack, you're a jerk because. you know. And this all started because years ago I said that no one would ever call in and say, Jack, you're a jerk because you got paid off all my debt and I have all this stupid money. Jack, you're a jerk because of you I got my finances together, and now that I lost a job I can afford to find a new job in my own time. Jack, you're such a jerk, you know. Um, I, because of you, we put together a blackout kit. When the lights went out, my kids weren't scared. And because of you, we were all happy and had a camping trip in front of the fireplace. Right? Like, no one's going to call me a jerk for that. And then, you know, it was like seven years into it, people started actually doing it as a joke. And I just thought it would be a good way to celebrate episode 2500. It will be one for the history books. Please be part of it by calling the jerk line, which somebody said sounds like a twisted pornographic uh, number, but it really isn't. You can call the jerk line and be part of episode 2500 at 877-644-1345, 877-644-1345. I have had people ask me if you can use the speak pipe to record uh, your jerk call online for episode 2500, you can. It would just be a good idea. As soon as you're done with that, email me and let me know. Of course, as always, when you email me, put TSPC in the subject line. That brings us to our next one. I've got a bunch of stuff here that came from, guess what? Me, we, Mondays. That's right. We are taking a break from Facebook every Monday now, doing what we're calling Me, We, Mondays. Uh, I am in the MeWe chat room for the Survival Podcast Hangout every Monday from 10 to 10.30. Today I was there from like... I think I'm almost 9.30 to 10.30, and I got a lot of people asking certain things for feedback shows, and I thought, you know, it's a way to incentivize Me We Mondays. Let's go ahead and uh, and put some of them on the air. So let's start off. Uh, one person on Me We asked me about putting in a small garden pond. So, you know, we always have to define what small means. So to me, if you're going to put in like a fish pond, it's going to be like part of the garden landscaping, like a little goldfish pond or something like that. We need to be in the neighborhood of at least 100 gallons, and I think that's a bit small. And I want to kind of caution you that when you look at like the prefabricated shells 
or you start thinking about digging a hole and dropping in a liner. Numbers even like two or 300 gallons. It seems bigger than it is once you get everything done and put together and landscaped and look at it. You know, even a 300 gallon uh, garden pond is pretty small. Totally doable. And I think let's start out with the concept of depth. If you can dig a hole, which, you know, most people in the world can dig a hole. I, I really can't without jackhammers and dynamite. Um, if you can dig a decent hole, then I think a, a EPDM liner is the way to go over a prefabricated shell. If I was going to do a, a prefab shell, what I might do is an in-ground liner and then maybe one level up with a shell that overflows down into the in-ground liner. That makes a lot of sense to me. The in-ground liner, bang for the buck, you can get a lot more volume, and the most important thing is a lot more depth. Most of the prefab liners are only about two feet deep, and your, your struggles are going to be keeping it from freezing solid in the winter, depending on your climate, and keeping it from becoming very, very hot in the summer. Just even if you have the same general dimensions, having half of the pond maybe sloped down to a depth of three feet versus two feet, it's a massive greater amount of water. You'd have a lot more stability in your water. So not only will you be able to stay cooler in the, in the summer, whatever temperature you're at, the, the swings from day to night or as sun goes overhead uh, are going to be less. The next question was, should it be in the shade or should it be in the sun? The answer is it depends. It depends on where you live and what have you. But in general, assuming you live in a climate something like mine, uh, I think what you want is partial sun and significant shade. And the smaller the pond, the more shade you're going to need. That is going to seriously limit what you can do with aquatic vegetation. Um, but I would say you probably want no more, even in a really big pond, because we're still small, right, than six hours of sun a day. I mean, that's kind of pushing it. Um, you can get really hot really fast in the southern United States with that. Um, beautiful would be, you got six hours of sun, but even that has like a mottled shade, kind of like some, you get full sun for like an hour, then this tree kind of shades it a little bit, and then that tree kind of shades it a little bit, et cetera, and surface vegetation. So whether that's duckweed, salvinia, water hyacinth, water lettuce, uh, Botswana wonder is a good plant, Botswana feather, Botswana wonder, something like that. It's basically a big version of what we call the sensitive plant, you know, the plant you touch and the leaves kind of close up on them. They're real fern-like, little yellow flowers, water poppy. You, know, you want something that covers the majority of the surface. So if you have a, a return coming back to it, and you should, or some kind of fountain circulating water, you want to think of some way to kind of wall off that, at least at the surface, so your surface vegetation doesn't get a shit beat out of it. And then this person also wanted to maybe do this for aquaponics. Oh, maybe. I mean... This is my view with the garden pond. You're probably better off letting a garden pond being a garden pond. And you're probably better off building an aquaponic system as a purpose-built aquaponic system. If nothing else, you're probably better off building the garden pond, making it function as a garden pond, taking it through a season, learning all the things that can and will go wrong in your, 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 your climate, and then once you've kind of gotten everything figured out and you've got it kind of dialed in and the water chemistry's right and your frogs are showing up or whatever and you're happy with it and you're still sure that you want to do aquaponics, 
Then, you know, add some aquaponics to it. And, you know, an ebb and flow bed is a beautiful thing in a pond system. It really helps with water clarity and things like that. But just surface agitation and moving water is going to be enough to keep most ponds nice and healthy. I really do like the idea of going in the ground, you know, maybe something like uh, six by eight in the ground, three foot deep in the deep end kind of sloping and, and what have you, and then something like 100, 120, 110, a lot of them in that range, prefab shell above grade, you know, you can use rocks or you can use uh, landscaping stone or something like that to kind of wall it in so it's underground but it's above grade, so it's surrounded by earth, that's going to help keep a stable temperature pumping up to one and overflowing to the other. You do that, you've got, a, you've got it going on, you really do, you're not going to have a lot of problems with things. And it's a very, it's a system that, I'm not saying it can't fail, but it has limited points of failure, and as long as you have water moving, your failure is of little consequence. In other words, if something leaks, it leaks back into the big pond. And then you can look at, you know, where does it make sense to put in some ebb and flow or, or what have you. But again, I really want to kind of push people They want to do garden ponds for habitat, for beauty, for fish, for whatever. I just think you'll be happier if they're not an aquaponic system. Because you want as much water as you can fit, and you can fit more than you think you can. And when you get a lot of water, let's say you get up in a neighborhood of 800,000 gallons, you need a lot of grow bed to make aquaponics aquaponics. I would be more inclined to create something that looks natural, but maybe it's actually an ebb and flow bed, and plant you know reeds in it, plant water chestnut in it. Um, as long as you don't have a problem every year or two pulling a lot of roots out and kind of rebooting it, plant mint in it, you know, or plant something that's a vegetable that you can use that has a very low nutrient requirement that will do well. Uh, what I found that does that in aquaponics really well is green onion and celery, all from regrowth. So go to your store, buy yourself you know a couple bunches of uh, green onions, and pop them right in your ebb and flow bed, and cut from them as you need them. Don't cut them and put the tips in. Just throw them straight in there. Let them get like twice as big as they are before you start cutting them. And eventually, like a year and a half into it, they'll go to seed, and they won't be good anymore, and you can go back to the store and buy some more. But you can cut and come again with them. With celery... You know, save your celery cores. Ask your friends, family, whatever to save your celery cores. Do you have enough of them? Don't cut your celery off. Pull your outer stems off and leave the celery heart. Leave like the last three or four bits. I know it's the sweet part of the celery and all, but leave it attached to the root system with the leaves on. Drop that in an ebb and flow bed. In a week, it'll go from white to bright green, and it'll start growing like gangbusters. I've got some right now like it's second year, mid-second year, And it's going to seed. And I'm letting it go to seed to collect the celery seed. And I'll just keep dropping cores in. So that if you're going to do aquaponic-ish stuff with large ponds and you're never going to balance fully, let it just be what it is, a filter for bacteria to break down nitrates and let these low-nutrient requirement plants kind of fill that role for you. And it's, it's a pretty good way to go. And it looks good. Uh, an ebb and flow bed full of celery looks awesome. really, really does. Uh, next, another person asked me, and I have a link to the article. I'm not going to read it. It's pretty long. But I published an article on, or I published, I shared an article on MeWe this last weekend. And uh, it was on permaculture design. And the concept was concept planning 
versus detailed designs. And a couple of people in the chat said they would love to hear me expand on that. Um, so let's talk about what it is at first. And again, I have a link to the article if you want to read it in the show notes. But basically, the author makes a case for the way we teach permaculture, as in full-on permaculture design in a PDC, is flawed for the majority, not all, of students. And the reason they're saying that is part of your PDC is you'll make a very detailed design. There's a lot of things you'll do in a project there. They'll make a sector map, a zone map, and stuff like that. And that's really not what they're making the case against. It's the detailed drawings. In other words, right here in this spot that I built this whole thing, this diagram out of graph paper with colored pencils, and it looks like an art project, in this one spot there is going to be a pear tree. And around that pear tree is going to be three comfrey plants drawn to scale. And then out from there we're going to put in some hostas, some edible hostas. And then that's going to be mulch. And then that little thing is its own thing. And then over here is going to be this garden. And we're detailed down to the fine tip of the pencil on every single plant and exactly where it's going to go. And that that is a flawed way to teach permaculture because, first of all, Most people that take a PDC or permaculture design course are not going to go be designers as a profession. The vast majority are going to learn, help out some friends, but what they're really doing it for is they want a better understanding of the design science, and they're going to go do their backyard. Next, when they go do their backyard, they're not going to design it that way. Even if they do, by the time they're in their second year, they will have thrown the design away because it will bear no resemblance to where they are or where they're going because they're going to learn as they go. Most people aren't going to have twenty-five grand to go out and buy every single thing they want to do with their place and drop it all in on day one, which is probably good because there's so many bad ideas when you, when you think that way that you, you will learn by doing a little at a time. So people are going to phase their designs in. So we shouldn't even be teaching this, and what we should be doing is teaching people the concepts and then let them go implement over time the way that they're going to. I agree with that so much from a practical standpoint for the student to advise the student after they take their PDC. This is what you should do. And I think we should be teaching that in courses. We should be saying, hey, look, yeah, this is how we do a design project. You're not going to do this in your backyard. You're not going to do it this way. This is, a, this is an idea. This is a concept. I don't think we should stop teaching people how to do it, though. I do think it holds people back, though, from a standpoint because, like, your friends look so beautiful and, like, I can't draw for shit. I can barely draw a straight line with a ruler if I clamp it down with a C-clamp. I mean, that's how bad I am as an artist. Um, but I think doing design that way, it, what it really does is it helps you understand what you've learned if you take a, a, a you know a full 72-hour uh, PDC course, and it helps the teacher understand that you got it, you understand it, or it helps the teacher understand where you're missing it so that they can come in and say, this is what we need to redo so that I know when I say you are a certified permaculture designer now that I have, I have actually not done that just so that you'll give me money. I have done that because I've done my effing job, which is to make sure you're competent when you leave here, at least as competent as you can become in a two-week course. And so I do think we should continue that because how else do you get a student to fully put themselves mentally through the concept? And I would tell you that I don't think most permaculture teachers really judge the artwork. I think we're impressed when somebody does a really nice job. But what we're really judging is, 
Do you understand the concepts of, of relative placement? Do you understand the functional relationships of things and stuff like that? It's a, it's a demonstration component. But when it comes to how we're going to do things, absolutely. I, I've said repeatedly, you know, if, if you want me to design something, if it's large scale and it's going to have earthworks, I'm going to design it with a laser level and an excavator. That's how I'm going to design it. I'm not even going to start drawing shit because when I put that laser level out and I start pegging off things, the land is going to reveal itself to me. Much the way people describe how they sculpt. I did not make a deer out of stone. There was a deer in the stone and I revealed it. Um, I think that's a little bit bullshit from sculptors and it's not that easy. But from earthworks, the contours are where the contours are. The catchment is where the catchment is. There's hard catchment, there's soft catchment, etc. Like there's trees, there's restrictions, there's a mountain there, there's a road there, whatever. And and when you are going to do an earthworks level project, we're going to be putting in berms or swales or ponds. We're going to go out and we're going to put pegs in the ground. And once those pegs are in the ground, then we're going to temper that with a little bit of you know what do we really want and what's really feasible here. And then it's just like oh there it is. Or I'm going to design with a wheelbarrow, a mulch, and a shovel. And you just pick an area, and you start designing it, and you start thinking about it, and you understand all of the arrows that are in the quiver, and you do that. That's why, like, when we do, we did the permaculture series this spring, and I said things like, you know, you could build an entire property fence line as stone walls that are designed with keyhole gardens, and those keyhole gardens even could be wicking beds. And then on the back side of that, based on the solar angle, there could be a trellis, and we could be growing something on the back side, and that could be in from the property line. So that literally just by walking your fence line, you could have your gardens and your orchard all in one. And then I said, but you shouldn't just go do that, or you shouldn't decide that's what you're going to do. You should look at your budget, the materials, the climate type, etc., the layout, the neighbors, the social design considerations, the physical design considerations, and then determine whether or not that makes sense is something you might do full-scale the way described, or you might integrate a component or two of that. You might take a fence, and you might build this stone wall thing, you know, where a gate's going to go. So you're going to have a six-foot gate. So instead of a six-foot gate, we're now going to take what would have been 16 feet of fence and leave an eight-foot gap between there, a six-foot gap between there, and put the fence and put an arch over that. And then those two, you know, 16-foot stretches that replace two fence panels are that stone wall set up again, but it's not the whole fence line. Or maybe it's just you set up kind of this keyhole rock enclosed thing that you incorporate one of these small garden ponds into that's kind of a landscape feature in the back quadrant of your property. Like the the, the, the stone wall, uh, keyhole garden, backside, solar aspect, all of that is just a concept. And now we have to figure out where and when and if that concept fits into your landscape. Because the biggest problem I see with people that discover permaculture is they latch onto a thing. And probably the number one thing people latch on that they shouldn't to is a swale. Jack has swales, but if you look at my property, I have swales in one place. They made sense there. They don't make sense everywhere else. So I didn't try to force them in. Right? Thinking about contour, designing to contour, integrating contour, that always makes sense. Digging a ditch doesn't always make sense. Okay? So... If, if whether it's a wall, whether it's a herb spiral, whether it's a pizza oven, whether it's a swale, whether it's a pond, 
uh, whether it's key line plow, whatever it is, when people take the technique and then they want to force the technique, that's, that's the problem with the sharp pencil design. Because then I start feeling like I need to incorporate everything that I like, that I'm attached to, into this design. And it's really, you know, it's hard to draw pretty if you can't draw pretty, which I can't. But it's easy to draw things. It's easy to draw. I'm going to put a swale here, I'll put a pond there, and that'll connect with this other swale. There's a pond over here. It's simple. It's different to go do it. And it doesn't look, I don't care how pretty you make it on paper, it never looks in the real world like it looks on the paper. So I think conceptual design, and I have kicked around the idea of putting together my own PDC. I, I felt like the things that happened with Permaethos ended up largely out of my control, and it was never what I really wanted it to be. And so I've thought about putting together an online PDC that's primarily like screen flow. So instead of video and me and lighting and all that shit, it's mostly... You know, with, with the old school PDCs were all what you called chalk and talk. That's what Bill called it. That's what J uh, Jeff Lawton called it back in the day, too, chalk and talk. In other words, they had a chalkboard, and they had a bunch of colored chalk, and they drew a bunch of shit on the chalkboard, and they talked you the, the class through it. People all showed up. Well, I can't draw, but I sure as hell can use PowerPoint. And with PowerPoint, I can bring in actual pictures and things like that. And I've thought about setting it up so you just kind of go through it and keeping it very inexpensive and making it as accessible as possible. And if I ever do it, and, and I'll probably need help to do it, is the reality, just on a time restriction limitation thing. But if I ever do it, there will be an entire piece on the concept of conceptual design versus fine point design. And I may even change the way that a project is done, where it's more of a bubble diagram. There's going to be a, a food forest here with six overstory trees and ten understory trees and five bushes. Well, what kind? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. And then you just like draw a bubble in the area and make a key that says what's going in there. You know, and it could even be six to ten. How many? I don't know. As I plan them and figure it out, I'll figure because that's the way we actually do this. That's the way we actually do this. Now, if you're designing an actual orchard, like a spindle apple orchard or something, well, then we have known things like we have this square and we have irrigation lines and this is the spacing between rows, the spacing between plants, the height of the wires. That's commercial and that's great. And if you want to go into that world, you should be able to do that and keep permaculture principles involved with even developing something like, you know, the Miracle Orchard Stefan Sobakayak designed up in, in, in Canada is a perfect example of that. But for most people, what they want is they want to landscape their backyard with edibles. That's really what they want to do. They want to landscape their backyard with edibles. And instead of just landscaping with edibles, they want to create functional relationships. They want everything to flow nicely. And they want maintenance to kind of naturally flow. And they want, you know, things to live and stay alive. And they want to be able to really enjoy their backyard like a modern hunter-gatherer. And if, so if I ever do it, and, and I'm not saying I will, but if I ever do it, that's the way that I'm going to design things. And that's part of why I shared that uh, article. And when I said I highly agreed with it, that's what I was talking about. The uh, next question that I have today also came off of uh, MeWe for MeWe Mondays. And please join us for MeWe Mondays. It's pretty cool. I, I promise you, like, if you, again, I always say to people, if you don't use social media, uh, then, then don't. Cause, like, you just don't. 
right? But you might actually, if you used to and then you decided Facebook sucked, you might find this place to be a little bit different. I'm just saying. We're really enjoying ourselves there. We're having productive conversations. And this was a question that came in in the chat this morning. When I'm building a business, should I focus on building the website or the business itself? Boy, is that, and it depends. So, first of all, let me say it's 2019. If you have a business without a website, you're probably wrong. I'm not going to say you are wrong, but I am going to say you're probably wrong. This is the number one way people find stuff. So even if the primary business is a face-to-face -face donut shop, for instance, when somebody comes to town and they're looking for a donut shop, what do they do? They go on their phone and they pull up a browser and they search for a donut shop or they pull up Google Maps or whatever and they search for a donut shop. So you need to have a website. Uh, your website needs to look good. It needs to be professional. It does not need to cost a fortune. Uh, you can put together a nice little WordPress-based website, even if you don't want to blog on it at all. Uh, and you can do that for easily under a thousand bucks. And the best thing that most people can do for themselves, if they're going to be building a business that's going to need a, need a web presence, more like an online brochure than a, an active marketing. Uh, team, because that's a good website, is like having a marketing team fully integrated, all types of things. The best thing they can do is get it out from under themselves as quickly as possible, get somebody that's decent at it from a design standpoint that can make things look good, and get up that simple page. How to find us, here's what we have. If you do sell online, integrate a shopping cart, here's how to buy our stuff. Here's how to tell other people about us. Here's where they'll find us on social media. Here's you know how you do business with us. That's your story. And Getting someone to build that for you so you don't sit around and F around with it for ridiculously long amounts of time when you should be actually getting your business running, good idea. But, you know, do I focus on the website or the business? That depends. Is the business a web-based business? You know, and I, I know we're in a world where in some ways you could say that all businesses are web-based, but my business is web-based. TSP is a 100% web-based business. Uh, there is no focusing on one or the other for TSP. The website must be in place. It must function. It must be updated daily. Um, all of it has to work or the whole thing stops working, right? If I had a tire shop, Jack's Tires, which, uh, thanks to my old man, used to be a thing down in Jacksonville, Florida. If I got Jack's Tires and I have jackstires.com or whatever as a website, But my primary business is people that drive by on the street and say, hey, there's a tire shop there. Uh, I'm tired of getting ripped off by these big chains. Let's go give this jack guy a chance. And people come in and buy tires from me. And my website gets shut off. So what? Now, I think I need to fix it. I still think I need to have the presence. But it's not like, oh, gee, now since my website's off, my my uh, my my lifts won't go up and race cars, and the air compressor's going to shut off, and uh, my techs aren't going to be able to use their impact guns to change tires in a tire machine. Is it going to, you see what I mean? Like, like so what kind of business are we talking? Because the person that asked this didn't say anything. So I, I think there are companies that are putting a tremendous amount of effort into the web is not really very fruitful for At least initially, there are companies that you would be better off making all the Chamber of Commerce meetings or running some direct advertising or something like that, uh, getting the word out. Radio still works dramatically well for local businesses, so it has a great deal of dependence upon what 
you are actually in the business of doing. And I hate to put it this way, but a lot of times the reason people are confused is they don't know what they do. Like, they don't know what they actually do. Um, so you say, well, what is your business? Well, I'm, you know, I provide services. Well, what kind of services? Uh, consulting services. Okay, great. To who? Well, I don't have a lot of customers yet. Okay, who is your actual, like, I don't know how you're going to be a consultant when, yeah, like that, right? So you got to know what you, what you're going to do and why you're going to do it. If you're building a content based online business, then you got to get the website right, right? You really do. Um, if you're building a ice cream shop, then the shop is more important than the website, at least initially. And I just think that's how you, you have to think about it. It's never one to the exclusion of the other. It is where does the time go and why. And I, I really don't think this is a problem for anybody. I think this is one of these problems that people turn into problems because we like to have problems because they, problems give us an excuse from progress. So I think that anybody that was having this mental dialogue internally, if they just said, okay, for a second I'm going to shut up and I'm going to pretend this isn't my problem. And I'm going to take four steps backward out of my body and look over my shoulder at my desk and say, let me look at this person. And their business is X. And their current status in that business is Y. And their primary customer is Z. And their total sales right now are, you know, one. And their projected sales next week, if they keep doing things the way they are, are one plus what? In most cases, zero. Or one minus, right? I mean, really. And if, if you do that exercise, which is a good thing to do with your business all the time, what would I tell myself if I wasn't myself? I know we have the self-conversations. Hey, self, what do you think we should do? Right. But what if you weren't yourself? What if you, you have to, you know, Buddha style, emotionally detach from your business and back up and evaluate it as though it's your friend's business or even better than your friend's business, some random guy that asked you your opinion and you analytically actually looked at the situation. See, and you can't claim then, well, it's like outside my area of expertise or whatever. No, it's not because if it's outside your area of expertise and it's your business, your first step is to get better at your expertise, right? But I think for most people, if we'll do that, you know, um, let's look at a company that's an MSB supporter, small company, Red Dragon Tees and Herbs, right? Um, they have a website. It's okay. It's not great. It's okay. Um, they do take online orders and what have you, and they're probably at a stage in their development where they might want to look at making that website a little bit better, a little bit more user-friendly, a little bit more engaging, a little bit more geared toward customer retention and customer loyalty, a little bit more geared toward, hey, very visual, do a lot of farmer's markets and all, a little bit better of integration with, like, let's say, your Instagram or your YouTube or something like that. Um, but they primarily got there because the website was good enough to work, and they went out and they hustled and they moved product. And nothing wrong with that at all. Get the product moving, and then when we tune up the website, it's like we want to get the car on the road and going down the road, and then we'll worry about, hey, Could we put better spark plugs in it? Can we open up things a little bit, maybe? Can we get the uh, injectors cleaned out? You know, uh, what, what do we do to make this thing run a little bit better? But the first thing we've got to do is get it out of the garage and get it going down the road. And for a business, that is getting revenue in the door. Let's take another one.
Um, this is kind of cool. Um, Ray, 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 I'm sorry if I'm saying your name wrong, uh, has a, uh, a business and an Etsy store, and they sell some really cool stuff. And uh, one of the cool things, it's like all like period you know, Viking type stuff, right? Most of it is anyway. One of the things they have are mead horns. And uh, it's like, you know, Viking mead horn. You drink your mead out of it or you drink anything out of it. And my first question was, hey, um, do you seal those things? Because I drank just a little bit of water to see what it was like out of an unsealed horn. And it's not good. It's like, it tastes like rotten brain is the best. And I don't really know what rotten brain tastes like, but yet I think that's what it must taste like. Uh, not good. They sealed with epoxy. You could drink cold or warm liquids out of them with no problems or whatever. But we are calling what we're doing on MeWe now Operation Suckerberg. So we are working hard to get more and more people at least give MeWe a try and come hang out with us. And the reason we're doing MeWe Mondays is because I think my experience has been if you, if you take a little bit of time, get past a little bit of the learning curve, actually friend some people up, follow some groups, and engage in the conversation – After a couple times, you're like, oh, my God, this is so much better. And when you go back to Facebook, you're like, what a hellhole. I mean, one of the people called it the trailer park of the Internet. And that, that's what I think Facebook is becoming. It's like the trailer park of the Internet. Uh, but she wanted to thank people who, um, who have helped her. And she's gotten a lot of help on MeWe. So she's running a sale uh, with a discount code. You can find it in my MeWe profile under my posts. Uh, if you have trouble finding it, hit me up on MeWe, and I'll, I'll tell you what it is, because it's part of Operation Zuckerberg, and uh, you don't get the code unless you're on MeWe. Just a little thing there. It's really cool stuff. Um, next up, Jake Robinson sent me an email. Several other people did um, on this new food forest going in in Atlanta. Seven acres are going to put in a public food forest. And Jake and quite a few other people honestly asked me, what are my thoughts on this? What do I think their likelihood of success is? And The, the site mentions, uh, the article mentions, and it's in the show notes if you want to read it, uh, that there are like 70 similar projects uh, going on right now that are in one way or another successful. And some of them are just marketed as, uh, you know, public parks that have edible, edible plants. And I was part of design and development for a food forest in Helena, Montana. At the time, I think it was either the second or third Um, you know, government-involved uh, food forest in the country. And I, I'm not even sure if that thing ever got built the way that we designed it or at all, honestly. I actually just looked it up. The Sixth Ward, Sixth Ward Garden Park is what they're calling it. And there's a website for it. And uh, the design actually looks very similar to what we came up with. Uh, with some changes that are reasonable. Um, but the photos really don't seem to match the design, and I can't find a place where it's just photos where you can really see what the whole thing actually looks like now. So that concerns me a little bit. If I ever get a chance to be in Helena again, I will uh, go by and see this park that I helped to design. But the reason I even bring it up is it showed me what working with government to try to do something like this is like. And there was like eight different stakeholders that all had to be appeased and everybody wanted their thing and they wanted a place for people to wait for buses and they wanted community guards on this whole space and not all of it usable. The entire space is only an acre and a half. And as we were designing this and going through the process and figuring everything out and trying to come up with something that met what everybody wanted, 
Um, my buddy Paul Wheaton came down from Missoula and, and, and looked at what we were doing, and he hated it. And he went off on a Paul tangent about how it's not really permaculture, it's just landscaping with fruit. And I don't think that was the case, but Paul always wants things Paul's way, and anything that's not 100% Paul's way is wrong. Love Paul, but I'm sorry, that's a limitation when you deal with Wheaton on permaculture especially. And so he wanted like 40-foot-tall culture mounds or something. Not quite that bad, but stuff like that. Right? You know, like, this is not going to happen because they, you know. But his statement that it's landscaping with fruit, I think on, a, on some level, if governments are going to put in parks, they're going to work like this and, and be food forest-y instead of food forests. That's what they need to do. They really just need to, you know, I, I will say something about civil engineers and, 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 and civil landscapers and what have you. Generally, they do a really good job of designing a park for the public that works for the public. They actually do a pretty good job. Like they know, they put trees here and there'll be shade and then we'll put a picnic area there and a basketball court here and whatever. And I, I think all that we're doing here then is saying, well, instead of planting oaks, let's plant pecans plant maybe some walnuts, you know, based on the climate and, and getting other plants into the landscaping, using herbs and medicinals and stuff like that. And I think you're kind of better off not really overemphasizing the whole permaculture food forest thing from the state level. Again, I'm feeling dirty again, giving the state advice. But the reason is that these things take time to develop, and you can't have people kind of stripping everything before it has time to grow. And so, you know, planting bushes that are pomegranates instead of holly, for instance, eventually there'll be fruit and what have you and nuts and other things that are uh, harvestable. And that stuff kind of comes in waves. And then if it doesn't get harvested, it just falls to the ground and rot. So you don't have to start worrying about, well, like, what if somebody takes all the food or something like that? What you're going to end up with is people just realizing, hey, this stuff's edible. And I think kind of being under the radar-ish a little bit until that place has time to develop is the way to go. And Jake mentioned in his email that they said there were, you know, quite a few things that were um, successful, that were similar things to this one in Atlanta. And one of the ones that they mentioned is the George Washington Carver Edible Park near Asheville. And I think that's kind of how this, this should be done if you're going to do it with a public entity. It's a park with edibles in it. Let's just because that's what just again what what I would design for your backyard or what I would design for somebody with a commercial operation might be kind of park like in feeling, but it's not a park. They do a good job with parks, so let's just design edibles into the parks. You know, because some of the things that were going on with the. Uh, the one in Helen is they wanted solar power to run a pump to run water. And, of course, you're dealing with limited budgets for something like this. And it's like you're going to eat so much budget. But we have to demonstrate it. No, you don't. No, you don't. You have electricity. Use the flipping electricity. This is, not a, this is not a demonstration site. This is a public park using public funds. You know, this is not a place to go and spend thousands of dollars to pump some water. And it was hard to make that case at times because one person that had the authority to withdraw support and shit can the project wanted that. And so 
I think that if I was going to do this, and I'm not because I hate working with government, but I'm glad some people will, will do it, that's the standpoint I would take is how do we design parks that include lots of edibles and lots of beneficial plants? And then as we build that, how do we develop education around it? So the, the, the projects that do that, I think are going to be far more likely to be successful than the ones that try to do it as a purist uh, type of installation. So Friday we talked about citizens' arrests um, with Officer Steve Wise and um, the do's, the don'ts, and the really, really don'ts. And I told a story about a guy that ended up arrested because he was one of those special little children who decided he was going to be a hero, and uh, he saw a guy with a gun in Walmart and tackled the guy and, like, bear-hugged him and held him on the ground. And the guy with the gun, not wanting to escalate the situation, just keeps telling this guy to leave him alone, let me go, there's no reason for you to be doing this. Yes, I have a gun, I am a licensed carry holder, there is nothing illegal about me having a gun, you need to let go of me, the police show up, uh, deal with the situation fairly well, figure out what everything's going, and then arrest the idiot who thought he was a hero. Uh, but I talked about the dangers when you're in these situations of what happens when law enforcement gets there. This prompted uh, a gentleman that calls himself Justin Case, who is a law enforcement officer, and I won't say what city he's in, though if you follow him in social media, you'll know what's, what, what state, anyway, he works for. Uh, but he keeps his real name uh, under a pseudonym for his protection, and I understand that. And boy, I wanted to read this comment that he, he left about this, because if you don't believe me, when I say specifically as an armed citizen, the most dangerous thing that you have to worry about is cops showing up and thinking you're the bad guy, then maybe you'll believe somebody that's a cop. Here's what he says. Similar to Jack's Walmart example, I personally had an off-duty, out-of-uniform instance where I intervened in an armed robbery in a large city many, many years ago. I was on vacation and very unfortunately dressed in a t-shirt, shorts, and flip-flops of all things. This was an eye-opening learning experience for me as well. I don't wear anything but shoes that I can run in when I leave the house anymore. I also carry more tools. I was alone in my vehicle and pulled up at a Best Buy parking lot so that I could run inside and purchase a tripod for a family camera for our trip the following day. As I arrived up near the pedestrian crossing in front of the front door, a male exited the store, pushing a shopping cart full of merchandise stacked up about six foot high. I then noticed the male pushing the cart turned a pistol towards me, which at first I thought he was about to attempt to carjack me, but continued walking out towards the parking lot. As he walked deeper into the parking lot, I noticed a couple of people, including, including employees, poked their heads out the front door of the business, all on their cell phones and watching the male. This confirmed for me that this was almost certainly an armed robbery in progress, so I put myself into tactical mindset and proceeded to drive deep into the parking lot to get ahead of the robbery suspect. I located the mail as he stopped at a vehicle at the far end of the lot, transferring all the stolen property into it. I had my off-duty pistol in my hand from the second that the mail had pointed his firearm at me. I grabbed a set of handcuffs that I happened to have in the door of my vehicle for some unknown reason that day. I then tactically moved up closer to the mail from behind him, placing the vehicle's engine block and the concrete base of a light pole between myself and the suspect. I observed him for a few seconds to make sure he was alone and there were no other citizens in front or behind him before I addressed him. As I watched him loading the truck, I could see both of his hands. He did not appear to have his firearm 
uh, on his waist that I could see. I then yelled out, Police, keep your hands where I can see them. The male froze in place trying to locate me for a few seconds. The male finally noticed where I was and that I indeed had a firearm pointed in his direction and looking around him didn't see anyone else with me. The male then turned and ran away as fast as possible, leaving his firearm and all the stolen property in his truck. After the male was a decent distance away, I moved up uh, by myself, cleared his vehicle to make sure nobody else was inside of it. A couple of citizens and an employee walked up near me as they were still on the phone with 911. I can tell you that this was where I was actually a little more fearful for my safety as I was now a male standing in a parking lot of an armed robbery holding a pistol Uh, surely a bunch of officers were rushing my way to stop a robbery in progress. I immediately informed all the people, uh, all of the people on the phone with 911 to inform them that an off-duty police officer was on scene and to describe me the exact way I was dressed so arriving officers would not shoot me thinking that I might be the suspect. I then went to my vehicle and secured my firearm in one more effort to keep another officer from pointing a gun at me. At that point, I took care of collecting witnesses and evidence for arriving officers since they were now looking for uh, where the suspect had run off towards and not immediately responding to the scene anymore. The reason I give this story is that I wasn't in much fear of my life when addressing the suspect, but I was very fearful of responding officers looking for someone with a gun. That was me in my mind, and I didn't want to take any chances. I can tell you that most officers appreciate any help citizens uh, can provide. Uh, but everything the expert council member stated in regard to uh, being a good witness and in some most sound advice that ever applies to off-duty officers, especially when there's other people nearby who could be at risk. I was someone who knew the laws of the state and had quite a bit of tactical training before this incident to include being a combat veteran. I can say that no matter how well trained you may be, you could still fall victim to friendly fire situations, especially in more serious crime progress that happened near you. Well, uh, with some of the people that I've seen shot by police officers for far less, I can say I completely agree. And here you have uh, an officer doing everything exactly the way that he's taught to do it in the situation he's in. Because they get training in how do you respond off-duty as well. Number one fear isn't this guy with a gun that just stole a TV set wants to shoot me, that my own fellow officers will kill me when they get here because of the way the situation looks. And I come down hard on police officers when they excessively use force, whether it's deadly or not. And I think that we should. But you can understand the exact mindset. There's a robbery in progress. I get there. Here's a guy with a gun. Hey, this must be the guy. And uh, I'm going to be on a very heightened uh, and dangerous sense at that point and potentially dangerous to that individual. And I think there's a lot of advice there if you are a citizen responder in a situation where uh, guns are involved, even if there's no gunfire, and you're dealing with somebody who's already on the phone with 911 saying, hey, we've got an armed citizen here, this is who he is, he's, you know, this, he's helping out, you know, he's a male, he's five foot eleven. he's wearing a black shirt and tan shorts, he's not the guy. Uh, you know, and honestly, I think you should be on the phone with 911 as soon as you can be. Sometimes that's the case. Sometimes it's, I mean, you can't, if, if you're dealing with an active shooter, uh, you can't really, if you're being shot at, it's kind of hard to be on 911, um, especially if you need to be returning fire because that's the situation you're in. But if you can be on 911, you should be. I'm here. I'm armed. This is me. This is what I look like. I will absolutely disarm when officers get here because that's a lot of times what happens. This situation was different. Um, Justin chose to disarm because it made sense. Guy's gone. No reason to stay armed. 
There's times when people call 911 and 911 operators tell that person to disarm themselves. It's like, no, no. There was one I remember hearing the actual call. This guy broke into this, this, this woman's house. She's a grandmother. And her daughter happened to be there. And she caught his ass in the closet. Her closet in her bedroom. God knows what he was going to do. Well, she had a .357 pointed at, at the guy. And her daughter's on the phone with 911. And, and, and the, the 911 operator is telling her to put the gun down. And the daughter tells her. I think I actually covered this when it happened years ago. And the daughter says, put the gun down, Mom. And she says, the hell I will. She's supposed to put a gun down? She's got a guy? She's holding him at gunpoint in her house. So if I'm ever in a situation like this and a 911 operator tells me I need to put my gun away or disarm or whatever, in a situation where the reason my gun's out is because my life or the life of someone else is at jeopardy, what I will inform them of as soon as officers are on the scene and have control of the scene, I will, I will gladly put my gun down. right? And this is who I am and please don't shoot me. But I'm not going to disarm myself in that situation because some idiot, because, I mean, I know some of you guys are 911 uh, dispatchers. I've heard from you. And some of you are really good at your job. Some of, them, some of them aren't. Some of them are not. I've talked to a couple. How did you get this job? Don't be wrong. I'm glad someone's there. But really, like, wow. Um, and I've heard some, you know, 911 actual calls where you're like, what are you telling this person? So there's a point where we have to make our own decisions, but we we need to understand that in an armed citizen situation, officers have the potential to mistake who you are, and so do other good guys. And this is another thing that you have to think about if you're going to be an armed citizen is when you do end up in a situation and you do see somebody with a gun, you need to assess the situation. You can't just say, oh, he had a gun, so I shot him, right? For all you know... The guy has a gun pointed at a car because inside that car there's some guy with a knife to his girlfriend's throat. You, 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 you have to take the time, and it's dangerous. And this is, I think, one of the things that people don't understand. That are, They'll say, you know, I'm willing to be an armed citizen. I'm willing to carry. I think you have to look at it as a right, and I think you also have to look at it as a service. And you have to decide which one of those or both are you willing to do. So I I would not pass up somebody in danger if I was armed and not try to help them. But I completely recognize your right to say, I carry for myself. I don't agree with it, but basically I'm not going to involve myself. I carry in case somebody's trying to kill me. And if I see somebody doing something, I'll make a phone call if, if that's it, and I, I'm not getting involved. I understand that. Um, I personally feel that my vigilance is not even about carrying a weapon. My vigilance is more for others than myself. That's who I am. That the odds of something happening to me are lower than the odds of me observing something happening to someone else. Just because I see a lot more than one person on a, on a given day. So the odds are higher that I'm going to see someone else in danger, someone else at risk, And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be careful about it. I'm not going to be stupid about it. But I'm going to do whatever I can if I think an innocent person is going to be harmed to help them. And that comes with an air of risk. And you have to understand something else about being an armed citizen that, uh, that really people don't seem to understand. Let's say you do have a situation. You, you're walking through a parking lot. Some guy is beating the shit out of his wife. I mean, not 
an argument, I mean just working her up. Hey, cut it out, knock it off. And you, I'm going to call the police, whatever. The guy turns on you. Says, you want it too? And he's a big guy, bigger than you, a lot bigger than you. When you pull your gun out, you have escalated to a potentially lethal situation. He now has, no matter how wrong he is, he has some level of justification in using his own level of lethal force to defend himself from a guy with a gun. I don't know who you are. I don't know why you're intervening. Right? Even the guy's an asshole that probably needs one in the head. That's still where you're at. So you have to understand all of these things if you're going to take on the responsibility of being a guardian of your fellow man. And you're going to do that with something like a gun. Guy has a knife in his hand, you pull out a gun, you've asked, you know, you have now given him some justification for cutting your throat if you can. Hey, you tried to kill me with a gun. You gotta have that in your mind if you're gonna take this step. Let's talk about our last one. This is gonna be very short. This comes from Bailey. Bailey says, Hello, Jack. Thanks to my favorite podcast, Jerk. I've decided to start raising quail. Can you recommend a breed to start with? I've been successful hatching chicken eggs, so I'm considering ordering quail eggs from Strombergs to hatch myself. Also, could you possibly send me some pictures of your aviary? I'm looking for inspiration to build my own. Well, Bailey, my aviary is in countless videos on my YouTube channel, so you can go there and look at it. It is a big, long, um, 10 by 50 foot strip with cattle panels and... A, uh, and, and hardware cloth over top of the cattle panels. It's, there's tons of, of video, and that would do you better than a picture of it. Um, for most people, I do want to say that I think you're better off starting raising quail in cages or some sort of tractors or something like that. Um, as far as breed, there's really only one breed of quail to raise specifically for meat and eggs. There's other quail that can sort of be that, and you know you can keep bob whites in an aviary or something if you want to, and some people do. But the quail that everyone keeps when it comes to truly, you know, a domesticated quail is Courtenay's, or AKA Japanese quail. These quail have been kept for thousands of years, and they have been bred and designed for this purpose. They lay for quail fairly large eggs. They grow very quickly. Uh, they will go from hatchling to a size that you could slaughter for for meat in five to six weeks. And they'll start laying eggs like clockwork at seven weeks. Uh, once they start laying eggs, they will pretty much give you an egg per quail a day, every day, until their first molt. That's a really good time to go ahead and cull them out and hatch out a new group. I did a three-hour-plus Q&A show on quail. And almost every question that you could possibly have about quail was covered in that episode. Better... We took the time with that one to go through and timestamp it. So you have to manually go to that time sequence. But if you look at the notes, you see a question will say, you know, 38 minutes and 55 seconds in. So you can jump to it and get the answers just to the questions you want. So I'm going to direct you to that. Um, I have got the, uh, the show notes uh, for that one and the episode for that one in the show notes today linked up. You can go check it out there. But I do think most people, when it comes to keeping quail, you're better off start out with, you know, a dozen of them or something like that, uh, and keep them in a, a, a common rack-based quail system uh, or, you know, some sort of a tractor or whatever, and learn learn the husbandry of the quail and then kind of take it to another level from there. You could build a pretty nice little aviary for them, though, um, you know, out of some cattle panels and make it portable, you know, something that's like uh, eight foot by... You know, maybe eight eight foot wide by eight foot long, 
Uh, it'd be fairly movable. Uh, they, it will get kind of heavy pretty quick, and you got to think about that. The biggest thing with my aviary is it's very large relative to the number of quail in there. There's about a dozen quail in 500 square feet. And you know you can keep a dozen quail in a two-by-two two cage. And they do very well in there. But the reason they do well in there is it's big enough, and by constantly throwing mulch down and stuff like that, they don't build up toxins and things like that in the soil. So if you want to get into aviary keeping, it's kind of a, a next step. I would start out with just basic quail husbandry, learn the animals, As far as hatching them, if you search my website for Incuview, I-N-C-C-U-V-I-E-W, Incuview, or just Incubator, uh, you'll find the, the incubator that I recommend. It's a little more expensive than um, the Styrofoam ones and stuff like that, but it works so much better. It's programmable. It's got auto-turning. It is fantastic, uh, and uh, it works great for quail. So, Bailey, I hope that helps you, and uh, you say you're an MSB member, so thank you for that. Reminder, guys, MSB on sale. Uh, discount code SUMMER19. SUMMER19 is the discount code. Uh, do consider becoming a member because when you do that, you support this show. And the other thing that you do is you get so many discounts, then your membership pays for itself. And I just can't understand why somebody wouldn't buy something that actually puts money back in their pocket. So uh, do consider joining that 30 bucks a year. Discount code SUMMER19. It really puts, you know, puts money back in your pocket. That other way that you can support us is by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com, tspaz.com. Today I have a product for you that I mentioned a couple weeks ago. Since I mentioned it, the guy that I told you turned me on to it named David came over like the day after I did the show, and he gave me one of them. It's called the Thermocell uh, Mosquito Repeller. Specifically, the Thermocell 150 is the one that I have featured, but Thermocell has an entire lineup of products. Since he gave me that, I went and got myself a big package of the, the inserts and the cartridges, and I started using it. I love it so much. It is the greatest weapon in the war against mosquitoes I have ever found, and it is a really simple uh, product to use. It uses a combination of some insert repellent mats and a fuel cartridge, which is basically butane. Pull the bottom off, screw in the fuel cartridge, stick the repellent mat in, push a button, it lights a pilot light, turn it to the on setting, and it burns very, very low and very, very slow. It doesn't get really, really hot unless you put it like in a pocket or something. I mean, you can, I hang it from a belt clip when I'm walking around so that I don't forget it and it keeps the mosquitoes away from me. Uh, the, the, the grate on the outside of it is plastic. So if it was really hot, it would have to have a metal grate, right? So this is not something that I would consider to be very dangerous. I put out a video review of it with the, uh, the written review today. It goes through everything. And I think I said some of that, that written or the video review like, You know, it is an open flame, so you probably shouldn't be fixing a gas line while you're running one hanging off your belt. But if you need to be told that, you're probably not qualified to, you know, work on a gas line or own this thing or breathe like you're a special child that shouldn't be trusted with things. So I think most people, this would be a very safe thing to work with. Um, it works is the big thing. It works, it works, it works. And I got a, fe I got a, a feeling for how good it works this weekend. I was out walking around doing some stuff, and I was kind of on a part of my property by the brush line where it really, really has the most mosquito problems. And it was like late in the evening when they're the most active. And all of a sudden, I started getting bitten on my legs and my ankles and stuff. What the hell, man? I thought this thing worked. It's been working great for two. What's going on? Well, I looked at it, no light, and the butane cartridge had emptied. And what it was is 
They say that one butane cartridge will do three pads, and it really does more like four and a half, five. So when they are not fully empty and I have to have gone to my next group of uh, the pads, I just keep using them. So it was very little left, and it ran out. And as soon as it ran out, they were on me, and they were on me bad. Now just show me how good it worked. Um, the pads last four hours apiece. So one cartridge and three pads gives you 12 hours of protection. This is the important thing, though. When you shut it off, it's off. So if that pad has four hours of life in it and you use it for 15 minutes to run out and do something and shut it off, it just stops. It still has its three hours and 45 minutes left. So it's not like a once-and-done thing for each one of them. <clears throat> that makes it very affordable and very flexible. And then this is the biggest thing I love about it. Thermosol makes a ton of stuff. They make ones that look like lanterns. They make pretty ones for your patio, all kinds of stuff. They all use the same inserts and the same cartridges. They keep mosquitoes away for about a 15-foot radius. It's like if you have a big patio, you might want two of them. And they do have like pretty patio ones and lantern-looking things and stuff like that. I like the portable one because it's made to be portable. It's small, something you hold in your hand about the size of like a, a cell phone from 20 years ago. You know, like that type of size. Um, and I don't care if that's what's sitting on my table while I'm having dinner with my friends out on my patio. I don't need a special little one. But if you want to check it out, I have links to the entire Thermocell line. And then this is the one you guys that are hunters are really going to love. The smell from these things doesn't really affect deer at all. They don't really care. But they make an earth scent version of the pads. So you archery hunters and you deer hunters and stuff... You can actually use one of these while you're in a stand, not get bit, and it actually creates a cover scent environment for you. I am 100% sold on this product. I am in love with it for mosquitoes. I'm about to go on vacation, like I said at the beginning of the show. Uh, we have bad problems around the pool there with sand fleas, and supposedly it works good on that. I will be able to tell you whether it works on sand fleas when I get back. Um, It also supposedly works good on, like, biting flies, like black flies and deer flies. I don't go places very often that they're around. I guarantee the next time I do, I will take it with me. Um, but I, I have not verified that either. So if anybody's used it on things other than mosquitoes and can say, yeah, it works really good for that, or that eh, works but not as good, or just doesn't really do anything for that, uh, let me know. It doesn't do shit for house flies. I'll tell you that. House flies don't care. How's it work? Well, the pads are impregnated with basically, basically a synthetic version of chrysanthemum extract and that repels mosquitoes and then it gets heated up and it gets released and it keeps the mosquitoes away and it is dynamite on them uh, you don't have to keep track of time other than you know you need to check your stuff and make sure you know it's not going to run out on you when you need it um, when the, pa the pads are blue when they turn all white they're no longer good you replace them you just take one push it in it pushes the other one out simple if mosquitoes have been making your life miserable get yourself one of these And you'll probably get two. One big thing, and I made sure I put it in the write-up too. It is butane. Amazon doesn't take certain things back, certain types of batteries and stuff, and butane's one of them. So this does not come with the Amazon return policy that you normally have. But I think for the price, between $20 and $30, bucks, depending on what you buy, you're not going to want to return it anyway. The other thing is you can't take it on an airplane. Well, you can't take the thermocell fuel on an airplane. So I'm going to Florida. What did I do? I ordered myself a couple 12-hour packs delivered to my hotel attention guest. So if you're going to be traveling, you want to take it with you, the device can go, but the butane cannot. With that, we've wrapped up another episode. Let's talk about our song of the day. Uh, John Adam had uh, a week planned of Freddie Mercury music, which I love. But since I'm only going to be here one day this week, I'll, I'll do it the week we come back. We'll come back to Freddie Mercury. How awesome will that be? So I had to pick a song for today. I decided to do one I've done before, 
And I was originally going to do the cover version by Jimmy Buffett because I really like it. But I thought, nah, we'll, we'll go old school and do the original. This is Southern Cross by Crosby, Stills, and Nash. I love this song. I think this song is a work of musical genius. And there's so many things about this song that I love. Uh, when they speak of the Southern Cross, they're talking about seeing it not just because you're in the Southern Hemisphere, but seeing it from the sea at night on the Midnight Watch, right? And I don't think what people understand is what stars look like in that situation. I've never been at sea, uh, you know, far from land, in the dark, on a, a ship like they're talking about in this, uh, in this song. But I have been to some very remote places, like in the middle of Honduras, on the top of a mountain, with hardly any ambient light whatsoever. And in those situations, the way you see the sky is totally different. It is, it is beyond explanation. You either have or you have not seen it that way. And it's something we've lost as humans as, to progress with light pollution. So there's that. This song is also about the quest, right? In this case, for another woman. Uh, but it's really the quest for whatever you're looking for. And it's based on a, a, a kind of a, a true story about one of the writers went to, um, I think Japan is where he started his journey, and took this boat ride kind of getting over a relationship. Uh, from and, and you know, The places, the Marquesas and stuff like that, uh, these are real places along that journey across the Pacific, and it ends in Avalon. Avalon is on a place called Catalina Island in, uh, in California. I've actually been to um, Avalon. Uh, we went out and spent some time on Catalina Island. It was pretty cool. Spent a couple nights out there. And I was in a noisy bar that might have been the noisy bar in this song. So it's got that for me. But here's the big reason I decided to leave you with this, guys. I try to be as open as a person as I can about personal things in my life. I try to be someone that you can actually know even if you never met me. And I try to be genuine. And I'm going to tell you something about this song. When I get on a boat, and that boat's speeding across the waves, this is the song that plays in my head. I can hear this song in my head when I'm on a boat crossing a bay or a lake as though I had my headphones jacked into my iPhone and had it pumped up. I can hear this music. And so, as you're listening to this, just know, I'll be playing this song in my head quite a bit over the next couple weeks. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Got out of town on a boat from the southern islands Sailing the reach for a following sea She was making for the trades on the outside The wind on this heading live of Marquesas You got 80 feet of a waterline Nicely making way In a noisy bar in Avalon I tried to call you But on the midnight watch I realized Why twice you ran away Think about Think about how many times
Ship and all her flags are replying. 